Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. Today's episode is the first episode of the Paradise Lost Book Club. So the format of this episode will simply be that I will take one book a month from Paradise Lost by Milton, by John Milton. The books in Paradise Lost are ultimately, they're like the chapters, you know, so... But each one's about, well, this one's 800 lines long. So book one's 800 lines long. So what I will do is rather than read the whole thing out, like I normally do with this podcast, I'm just going to read out some excerpts, talk about why they're relevant to the poem. And then you, if dear reader, because I'm, I'm pitching this as a book club. If you've always wanted to read Paradise Lost, you can read it with me. So if you want to read the chapter before listening to this, if you want to put this on pause and maybe read the chapter and then come back and and listen to this, or if you want to listen to this and use this as a guide for reading that first book of Paradise Lost, um, then, then you make your own choice. I'm absolutely fine with it. Or if you just want to listen to this so that you can blag your way through Paradise Lost, that is also absolutely fine. So I'll be doing one book a month. So the whole year will be going through the entirety of paradise lost so i don't know if you feel that there's something missing missing in your life (laughs) a paradise lost hole in your life if you feel you can't be the full bookish fancy pants that you want to be because of a lack of knowledge of paradise lost hopefully this is this little project is going to steer you the right right way through firstly i'm going to give a little bit of background as i always think it's good to and i don't really want to um go spend too much time going over john milton's life One reason why is because I did that to a certain degree when I looked at a John Milton poem in episode nine. So if you want a bit more background of about John Milton before we launch into this beastie, then just go to episode nine and I give quite a lot of biographical background in that one. What I will do with this one is before we before we begin really looking at book one, we'll, we'll look at where Milton was in his life. So this was written near the end of John Milton's life. Um, John Milton, if I get my notes up properly, because I'm always rubbish with dates, he lived from 1608 to 1674. In middle age, um, this was, well, in middle age he went blind. and, And so Paradise Lost was written while he was completely blind. Now this is an interesting time in, in Milton's history as well, because one of the great projects of his life was being a part of the government of Oliver Cromwell. Now, as you probably know from English history, Oliver Cromwell, um, there was a conflict between Parliament and the Crown, between Parliament and the King. Um, Parliament were tired of, of funding expensive wars and him wielding his right of absolute power. So there was a conflict and that became the English Civil War. The king's side lost and Charles I had his head lopped off. And then Oliver Cromwell became the leader of England as the Lord Protector. And that was a time called the Interregnum, meaning between monarchs. Um, the, the name itself is kind of a spoiler for what happened afterwards, I guess. So for a fair, year, fair few years, England was without a king. Oliver Cromwell, like Milton, was a Puritan and so while he was certainly quite an oppressive leader, he was certainly oppressive to the people of Ireland and the people abroad. He also banned Christmas famously. So um, and he had his own frictions with Parliament as well. So he died. And then 
in, no one could really be found. I guess because people had rejected monarchy, no one could really be found to take over from Cromwell. So they re-established a monarchy. Now a truce was made between, you know, conditions were set out so that things wouldn't go back to how they were before. But Charles II ascended to the throne and um, Parliament back in session and everything like that and you know this 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 led to the, the monarchy becoming more of a ceremonial function um rather than the all-powerful function uh, that it was so andrew marvell the poet the uh, was was the secretary of oliver cromwell and if if milton fulfilled any role he was sort of a communications mess, mess communications officer a sort of a a spin doctor, if you will, and Alistair Campbell, if people remember the the, the rule of Tony Blair, but he was he was very much like the Alistair Campbell, the spin doctor of Cromwell's government. Now, when Charles II came back into power, now just because there was more of a balance between the monarch and Parliament did not mean that Charles II was not out for revenge for having his dad's head lopped off. John Milton he had to go into hiding and he was eventually cap captured and he was put in prison for a couple of months before he was pardoned. And now he, I think he still lived out the rest of his life in that state of paranoia. Things weren't entirely safe for him. So he lived a more quiet and bookish life. He was no longer involved in government, obviously. And this was around the time that he wrote Paradise Lost. So I think he was onto his third wife by this time. He had two wives beforehand. Again, I'm not going to go too much into his biographical details. So this was when he wrote Paradise Lost. So why did he write Paradise Lost? Well, the main aim... Even though, of course, he sets out his attentions with his invocation of the muse, which we'll look at in a moment at the beginning of Paradise Lost, one of his main motivations was to create an English epic. Now, you could say that, wait a minute, what about something like Gawain and the Green Knight or, or maybe Beowulf? I mean, those were old English epics, but he wanted a modern English epic. So he also wanted to write something that was in the, that, that was went back to... I mean, this is a time when classical, since the Renaissance, really, the, the classical texts of, of Plato and Aristotle and many others had had a great influence, had crept in. In some ways, he's a late Renaissance writer. In some ways, he's an early Restoration writer. Um, so he, he straddles quite a few little epochs. And in fact, I think, um, you, you know, I've, I've said this in lectures, Paradise Lost itself. So this English epic, it really typifies different aspects of Milton. There's Milton the Puritan for a start, because that was his religious aspect. Um, and then there was then there was sort of the um, the Milton the humanist as well, I guess, because this weds Christian and classical aspects together. So sort of ancient Greek, ancient Roman ideas and literature are melded with Christian ideas. And that's really seen as the beginning sort of in many ways it marks the beginning of, of, of the modern era as well as not modernism as in 20th century work, but just the modern era as in speaking modern English and the post-Renaissance era. And he was a Baroque writer as well. So this was these, this style that's sort of highly detailed, highly ornate, highly sumptuous. It's very recognisable in, in Baroque architecture. I mean, Notre Dame Cathedral can be seen as a, a work of Baroque architecture. There's Baroque music as well, like the music of um, Bach. And then there's also the Baroque paintings of Rubens, for instance. Lots of detail, lots of very dramatic, very sumptuous. So, so the, the, his use of detail as well as epic imagery is seen as very Baroque at the same time.
So yes, he wanted to write an English epic. Now, some people also say that the, the whole concept of Paradise Lost in itself is, is, or maybe an unconscious aspect of it, is his own paradise was lost in, in the sense that his, his Puritan, his pure Puritan England, ruled by the Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, that was lost as well. And so he was living, you know, his team didn't win in the end. They won for a while, but they didn't, they didn't stay in power. And so, he, you know, he was reduced to not taking part in, in political or worldly affairs. He lived a quiet bookish life and he really became purely a poet. And so maybe people see Paradise Lost as that aspect of regret for that lost, that, that lost paradise of Christianity, of puritanical Christianity that was no longer about. So I think we're just about ready to start delving into book one. Now, before we, we delve into book one, I just want to look at the front matter because it's fantastic. So um, there's a few things where Mil that Milton have written, uh, was written in preparation for Paradise Lost, but, but there's a, a little note on the verse and it's quite a famous note on the verse of Paradise Lost, how it's written, the style it is written in. So Paradise Lost does not rhyme. It's written in iambic pentameter. Dida, 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 dida. That's what a line of iambic pentameter sounds like. Unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. That's the metric foot times five each line. But it doesn't rhyme. And he seems like he has to justify. People have become so used to rhyme that he, he has to justify it in this paragraph that's um, inserted into a later edition of Paradise Lost. Now, in using no rhyme, he's actually imitating the classical poets. And he's also saying that other poets on the continent, like Italy, are also imitating the classical poets in which there's still an emphasis on meter. But there's no there's no emphasis on rhyme or they're using other rhetorical or effects or alliteration or maybe even internal rhyme, which is when the rhymes sort of happen within the lines instead. So this style of writing, which uses iambic pentameter and doesn't rhyme, um, it's called blank verse. Now, another thing about blank verse is it's normally arranged into what we call verse paragraphs rather than stanzas. Now, stanza normally could be something like something written in quatrains, for instance. So like a ballad, it's written four lines at a time with some white space on the page separating each set of four lines and that's what we would call a stanza now the difference of a, between a verse paragraph and a stanza is a verse paragraph is normally of varying lengths it's normally longer than your average stanza and the thing that divides the verse paragraph is how we would divide the normal paragraph so it would be a case of dividing it in you know there's a change of subject or a change of emphasis maybe a slight change maybe a dramatic change but the logic that separates them is not a strict logic of form it's more a strict logic of how we're dealing with the subject now i have this bit of an introduction here with milton defending his lack of use of rhyme and i, I love this i love this paragraph i might have to read it in full so and it's always interesting, actually, because if you, if you every now and again, maybe if you're a young person who writes poetry and you're writing poetry that doesn't rhyme, but you've got some um, the same people who stand in front of an abstract painting and go, anyone can do this. Or, to be fair, I'm, I don't know what, why I betray my working class origins whenever I play a stupid person. But maybe that person says, anyone can do this. What is this? See, posh people are stupid, too. So. I would say, you know, if a, someone reads poems and goes, but it, but it doesn't rhyme, it's not a poem, 
which I know most people don't say that, but you still get people who say that. So this is milk, you know, but some people I've heard people saying this argument about how you must use rhyming poetry because it's the traditional thing to do. And that's what makes this paragraph so wonderful in the face of that kind of delusion, pointing out that rhyme. Well, this this one written written in the 1600s says that rhyme is just this newfangled, fashionable thing that that really, really isn't 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 is quite vulgar and doesn't respect tradition. So it turns that on its head. So let's read it anyway. So this is his note on the verse. The measure is English heroic verse without rhyme, as that of Homer in Greek and Virgil in Latin. Rhyme being no necessarily adjunct or true ornament of poem or good verse, in longer works especially, but the invention of a barbarous age to set off wretched matter and lame metre. Um, wretched matter so also lame meter you know when your poem rhymes you can get away with uh, not being as tight on your metrical qualities but also um, I love it uh, wretched matter as well so rubbish subject matter graced indeed since by the use of some famous modern poets carried away by custom but much to their own vexation hindrance and constraint to express many things otherwise and for the most part worse than else they would have expressed them <laughs> not without cause therefore some both italian and spanish poets of prime note have rejected rhyme both in longer and shorter works as have also long since our best english tragedies as a thing of itself to all judicious ears trivial and of no true musical delight which consists only in apt numbers fit quantity of syllables and the sense variously drawn out from one verse into another not in the and I love it. So he's saying, you know, the, the, the true balance in the music of poetry comes from apt numbers and numbers being the, the metric feet. Normally, that's what they mean. So um, and the sense variously drawn out from one verse into another, not in the jingling sound of like endings, a fault avoided by the learned agents, both in poetry and in all good oratory. I love that. Isn't that such a good cuss of end rhyme? The jingling sound of like endings. Beautiful. This neglect, then, I still love end rhyme, by the way. I mean, obviously, this didn't destroy all rhyming poetry, um, but, but I, I, I just I, I love a good hatchet job as well at the same time. So this neglect, then, of rhyme so little is to be taken for a defect, though it may seem so perhaps to vulgar readers that it rather is to be esteemed an example set, the first in English, of ancient liberty recorded, uh, recovered to heroic poem from the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyming so you're getting it he's going back into tradition and to do so he's getting rid of rhyme and i think as we all know i mean anyone who's who's even delved the slightest bit into the the, the poetry of, of paradise lost knows it's a wonderful imagery dense and and musical and wonderful sounding text we know that when we read it out loud so I'm going to get into the text now. I think we've set it up. We've read a bit of his introduction. Um, it's quite handy, but in some in some versions of Paradise Lost, we actually get an argument written by John Milton to introduce us to what's happening um, in the text. Now, I don't want to read that bit out. I mean, you could just go through the whole of Paradise Lost not reading it and just read the argument bit, and, there, and you'll have a whole plot in 12 paragraphs. But I think it's good to uncover what's going on by looking at the text itself. So we begin Paradise Lost because we are beginning now um, with 
an invocation of the muse. So an invocation of the muse is ultimately when someone who's beginning to tell an epic, a story in an epic poem, they call upon the gods or they call upon the muses to give them the gift of poetry so that they can begin to tell their stories. Now, this is what the Homeric bards would have done. And we find this in a lot of bardic traditions, that someone will call upon the gods or the muses to guide them in their retelling of a story. Now, with a bard, that would have been different because the bard would be partially improvising the story. You know, a bard is someone who, um, in, in an epic bard anyway, is someone who will find new words, as 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 they say in the in the tele, in Beowulf itself, in telling ancient stories. And while they'll use very familiar turns of phrase and familiar rhetorical effects, and maybe repeat verbatim some very accepted parts of the epic. They will also um, make up their own moments and improvise their own things as well. So that's why they're calling on the muses, because with a bard, with an oral bard in the oral culture and the epic poems, in the, in the proper epics before they were written down, it would be a case of the piece being written as it's being performed. The, the act of composition and the act of performance are the same thing within the epic bardic tradition. So let's look at Milton's invocation of the muse and this is great because I, I think this and lots of the poem one thing we will hit again and again in the poem is this melding of christian tradition with classical tradition when i say classical tradition i just mean the the, the greek and the roman traditions of literature and so he's walking a fine line you know especially for a puritan you know, and, and we see later on in this text, in this very book, in this first book of Paradise Lost, the line is walking between idolatry, I guess, falling in with the bad old gods and his faithfulness to the new gods. And he finds quite a few little devices to keep him on what he sees as the right side of that. Anyway, let's read this invocation to the muse and this and this very famous first verse paragraph of Paradise Lost. Don't worry too much. I won't explain all of the, the references because there are so many references to the Bible and to classical mythology all the way through. If I think it's particularly important and more importantly, if I bloody remember what the thing is, then I'll mention it. But there's stuff I've looked at, I've made notes about, and I'm still going to forget what half of this stuff is. It's not entirely important for you if you are reading the text so don't be too intimidated by all of these references to things that you know nothing about no one hardly anyone on the you know planet can just read through this first time and understand all these references so you're not stupid if you don't get them either here we go of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe We've lost of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Or if Sion Hill delight thee more in Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Ionian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme and chiefly thou o spirit that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure instruct me for thou knowest thou from the first was present and with the mighty wings outspread dove-like satst brooding on the vast abyss and madest it pregnant 
What in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support. That to the height of this great argument, I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. Stumbled over my lines a little bit there. Excuse me for that. So, wow. Wow. One of the most striking things is when you first read this is how long the opening sentence is. I mean, when we um, we think of a subject, a sentence as verb, uh, subject, verb, verb, object. And so um, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. There we go. Subject right away. How long does it take to take us to get to the verb and the object? About. Well, six lines, about six lines. So of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forgotten tree, forgotten tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Here comes the verb sing yeah, and relax. And the subject heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai did inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed. So he calls upon the heavenly muse and, you know, say he wants to sing. So there's a nice sort of inverted syntax as well, I guess, of man's first disobedience and the fruit um, of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste. So it's actually object and then verse, yeah, object, verb, subject, where normally when we do it, it's normally subject, verb, object. You know, John went to the, John walked to the shops there we go that's my that's my contribution put aside milton there um so he's invoking the heavenly muse now the heavenly muse i mean he 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 um he, he speaks a little bit about sion which is almost like the you know the promised land of israel in um in the old testament and then um he, the, the the shepherd being christ as well who taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos and then finally um he he um he's asking also for the holy spirit and chiefly thou o spirit that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure so that's an interesting thing I mean, his, his disdain for temples continues throughout this but just sort of as a protestant as a puritan it's an interesting thing which is the spirit itself is the most important thing the spirit within human hearts very humanistic as well um thou from the first was present and with mighty wings outspread dove-like Again, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Sats brooding on the vast abyss and made it, made it pregnant. It's wonderful, intense, and again, very Baroque imagery here. And finally, where he says, What in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support. But to the height of this great argument, I may assert in provid eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. It's a classic, a classic invocation of the muse going on here is in they're almost putting... I want to do this, but it's out of my hands. It's the God speaking through me instead. And I, what I also love, and I'll get back to this, is what's in me, what in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support. He's talking about his blindness. Isn't that interesting? Because I think about, and I'll probably speak about this more at the end, but I think about the, it's so visual, Paradise Lost. Whereas I am absolutely blown away by the visual worlds that Milton can create and wonder if it is down to his blindness that he's able to create them. So it's interesting he's asking for light within where it's dark, the darkness that he's spoken about a lot in his poetry. You know, he wants that to be illumined, but at the same time, he's comparing it to his limitations as a, a human being, as a sinful human being. Let's carry on with this, actually. I think it, I have to just carry on reading from the text. So, say first, for heaven hides nothing from thy view, nor the deep tract of hell. Say first, what cause moved our grandparents in that happy state, 
favoured of heaven so highly to fall off from their creator and transgress his will that's adam and eve obviously the fall from the garden of eden um for one restraint lords of the world besides who first seduced them to that foul revolt the rolt the infernal serpent he it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge deceived the mother of mankind what time his pride had cast him out from heaven with all his host of rebel angels by vo by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers he trusted to have equalled the most high if he opposed and with ambitious aim against the throne of monarchy of god raised in pious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt a lovely line break here as well you know he raised so we go from talking about adam and eve the grandparents to the serpent who here's a little break here we often associate the serpent with satan now this if we look at the old testament or the scriptures the devil isn't really present the devil is more of a christian idea than it is an, a, um, a jewish idea same with hell um the jewish afterlife is or the jewish idea of hell is shale but there's not really the idea of heaven and hell there's just an underworld much like the um, underworld of classical mythology like hades it's not really a place of punishment it's not really a place of joy but it's not really a place of terror either so satan itself yes satan appears in the book of job but satan again isn't really he's just like a tempter he's a person who's there to tempt it's not clear whether he's an angel whether what kind of creature he is and the snake in the garden of eden is is ultimately just a snake there's nothing really to indicate that it is satan from the early scriptures so this idea of satan being associated with this figure who is the devil is it happens much more in christian interpretations and in Christian um, Christian writings as well, so in the New Testaments and the Gospels. Okay. So there's a wonderful line break. Against the throne and monarchy of God, raised in pious war in heaven and battle proud. Line break with vain attempt. I love this. It's a bit like that saying, sing heavenly muse, but there's the way line breaks are used. Um, there's a lot of enjambment in this so normally when we look at the work of alexander pope and other people that write sort of in this this longer epic style the uh, paragraphs are end stopped or the lines are end stopped so it tends to be a comma or a full stop and there's not much dramatic use of enjambment the sort of couplets because if it we're talking about maybe alexander pope couplets are very self-contained but here he really uses the line break the double pattern i think quite skillfully so here we see one aspect of it battle proud with vain attempt it's very deflationary so him the almighty power hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky with hideous ruin and combustion down to bottomless perdition there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire who durst defy the omnipotent to arms now this is an interesting contrast here um the titans so again we're looking at borrowing from classical texts the titans in their fight with jupiter when they rose against him in, in the heavens they fell from nine for nine days and nights they fell into hades for nine days and nights um, and sometimes it's interpreted from here that, that also satan and and his fellow rebel angels who rebelled against god were also falling for nine days and nights but that's not quite true so nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal men he with his horrid crew lay vanquished rowling in the fiery gulf 
confounded though immortal but his doom reserved him to more wrath for now the thought both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him roundly throws his baleful eyes that witnessed huge affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate at once, as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation, waste and wild, a dungeon horrible, on all sides round, as one great furnace flamed. Oh, here's a lovely bit. But before this, right? So, they've just been lying around, nine days and nights. So, where the Titans in, in ancient mythology just fell for nine days and nights, which is very dramatic into Hades. This lot have just been, like, lying down, going, yeah, oh, God, like that. Exactly like that. Um, so just been lying around hell feeling sorry for themselves. I, I mean, because they've just had the, 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 the bejesus. Probably need a better word for that, don't I, when I'm dealing with a Christian epic here. But they've had the, um, they've had the absolute shinola beaten out of them. Yeah. And they're just lying around because they've had a whooping. Because someone has, has opened that proverbial can of whoop you know what on them. So... They're lying around feeling sorry for themselves. And of course, it's Satan who, who, who surveys them, feels pity towards them, but at the same time feels that, that, that the, you know, the, 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 the urge of rebellion again stirs within him and his passion. He's lying around as well, going, as we've already said, in the true classical tradition and going, <laughs> and then he, he decides in that and he gets up. So, um, so we get to this bit here, which is a wonderful image, a very famous image, which is um, yet from those flames, no light, but rather darkness visible. So the flames that only emit darkness. This is something literature can do. How do we recreate these in CGI? How do we even recreate these images, this in an, a painting or something like that? It uses oxymoron, obviously, the idea that actually this is something that's impossible to picture almost maybe you can picture something but really delve into the details of that picture what does it really look like black flames from which darkness <laughs> becomes visible he's playing with oxymoron here which is it's the logic of a sentence structure that makes it feel like you can imagine it but actually it's much trickier to imagine in the sense that how can anyone portray this as a, as a visual image I find that really interesting and it shows the things that literature can still do, especially epic literature, but visual storytelling with 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 images is can't quite do yet because this is making a play on, you know, yes, it creates an image, but the, the, the image is illogical. But the structure of the sentence that shares that image is logical. And that's a trick that literature can do. There's probably some really fancy pants rhetorical name for it that I'll learn immediately after i've stopped recording this okay so there he is he's, he's looking over his demons i'm skipping over lines and he turns he turns to his his general his right hand man um, beelzebub now beelzebub is is another demon and i can't remember if, i mean if catholics but the catholic if if catholics i don't want to disrespect anyone's religion but one thing i like i really love about i'm a, i'm a former catholic myself but one thing i find really handy with catholicism is their um glossaries of demons it's just get in get in i love it so anyway um so so if you look him up he's kind of like a he's not quite the devil now he is identified as the devil in some texts some people do say beelzebub is another name for the devil but here and in elsewhere, Beelzebub is kind of seen as an arch 
let's just say, you know, his second in command, let's just say. So, if Faust beest he, but oh, how fallen, how changed from him, who in the happy realms of light, clothed with transcendent brightness, didst outshine myriads, though bright. If he whom mutual league, united thoughts and counsels, equal hope and hazard in the glorious enterprise, joined with me once, now misery have joined in equal ruin. Lovely line. Into that pit thou seest, from what height fallen, so much the stronger proved he with his thunder, until then who knew the force of those dire arms. So they felt that they were equal to God, and um, there's a little reference later on in the text about how God was just kind of sat on his throne, and no one really, you know, I guess he was just sat there, and no one, none of these archangels, these former angels of God, realized how powerful he really was. So I say, you know, one of many references to speak of the might of the the, the, the legion the force that satan raised but how ultimately they were defeated by by and then suddenly becoming aware of a power that they could not even conceive of who struck them out of heaven so he carries on talking about what they did um he with his thunder until then who knew the force of those thy arms yet not for those nor what the potent victor in his rage can else inflict do i repent or change though changed in outward lustre that fixed mind and how i disdain from sense of injured merit that with the mightiest raised me to contend until the fierce contention brought along innumerable force of spirits armed that durst dislike his reign and me preferring his utmost power with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne there's the pride of satan coming in of course satan's this the the miltonian satan miltonic satan and the one of the classical images of satan is of course his pride and his pride is very much about here but even though he's lost his battle he's been whooped he's thinking that at least he shook that throne you know he got that far he got that close now he begins to have this tone of consolation what though the field be lost all is not lost the inconquerable will and study of revenge immortal hate and courage never to submit or yield and what is else not to be overcome for glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me that glory even to bow and sue for grace with suppliant knee and defy his power who from the terror of his arm so late doubted his empire that were low indeed that were an ignominy and shame beneath this downfall since by fate by strength of gods and this imperial substance cannot fail um, since through experience of this great event in arms not worse in foresight much advance we may with more successful hope resolve to wage by force or guile eternal war irreconcilable on a irreconcilable on our grand foe i'm going to stop reading this verbatim you you get the drift <laughs> um but but he and maybe this isn't something to do with the the christian ideas of freedom here free will in the sense that satan has been punished but his will remains so and this comes back to the the the, um, the problem of evil actually so the, the christian response to the problem of evil from epicurus who says that um the problem of evil is okay there is evil so why does evil why does god allow evil and he says uh if he is he is willing but he is not i know he's able but he's not willing then he's malevolent he is willing but not able then he is not omnipotent uh 
he is not able and he is not willing, then why call him God? That's the that's the problem of evil by Epicurus. And the response, I don't know who properly coined this, but the Christian response to the problem of evil is, well, freedom. We need freedom. That's why God doesn't prevent evil, because we all need freedom within. Otherwise, we're just puppets and we must choose good. There's no meaning, I guess. That's that meaning seems to be the most high thing, more high than anything else. And so this is why, I guess, that Satan is allowed to carry on being Satan, even though he's been punished and he looks different now. So um, Beelzebub addresses him back and, uh, O Prince, O Chief of many throned powers that led thee in battle, seraphim to war under thy conduct and in dreadful deeds, fearless in endangered heavens, perpetual king, and put to proof his high supremacy. Whatever upheld by strength or chance or fate, too well I see and rue the dire event that with sad overthrow and foul defeat hath lost us heaven and all this mighty host in horrible destruction laid thus low as far as gods and heavenly essences can perish. For the mind and spirit remains invincible and vigour soon returns. Repeating this idea, well, we're defeated, but we're still free. And so that's it. That's his... Uh, He's saying, yeah, this is great, but what, what are we going to do now? What are we gonna, we're in hell. We can't, if we fight him again, we're just going to get whooped again. So what happens? So the Archfiend replied, Fallen cherub, to be weak is miserable. Doing or suffering, but of this be sure. To do aught good never will be our task, and ever do ill our sole delight. So we can carry on being proper dastardly little wrongins as being the contrary to his high will whom we resist if then this providence our out of our evil seek to bring forth good our labour must be to pervert that end and out of good still to find means of evil which oft times may succeed so as perhaps shall grieve him if i fail not and disturb his inmost counsels from their destined aim but see the angry victor have recalled his ministers of vengeance and pursuits. So now he's saying, look, 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 we're no longer getting struck by lightning. And uh, we don't see, it seems like all the archangels who did come down and fight with us, they're, they're, they've gone back up. So we've sort of been left to our own devices here. Um, so, you know, he's saying this seat of desolation, void of light. Um, again, those, those livid flames, which cast darkness, make darkness visible, whatever that means. Um, he says, let's go find somewhere. Let's go find a spot. Because they're just lying down. They're all lying down in, in molten flame right now. And he says, let's find a spot and let's uh, let's address everyone. So. The, ne the, the next big passage basically talks about how, it, how Satan sort of just, just moves over and finds this spot. And, um, and a lot of this actually, you know, starts to talk about how big Satan is. Um, the size so his other parts besides prone to the flood extending long and large lay floating many a rood in bulk as huge as whom the fables name of monstrous size and here it's uh the titans uh, uh again we're reminded of the titans and the viathan as well which is this whale as it appears in the old testament um he finds this little island where he can this little platform where he can finally um, move on to and then and then stand up and and it also sort of implies here that actually oh they can they're not really being watched they can do what they like in hell so god's confident enough even though god is omnipotent and knows everything at the same time he doesn't seem too bothered he's like whatever 
let them let them have the freedom because in a way they will suffer more i guess because of the freedom and um and so finally he addresses the angels again is this the region this the soil the climb said then the lost archangel this the seat that we must change for heaven this moonful gloom mournful gloom for that celestial light be it so since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid that shall be right farthest from him is best whom reason hath equalled force hath made up supreme above his equals so this is an interesting thing reason equals they're equal to god in he's saying that they're equal to god in everything just from force god is only kind of higher than them and lords over them because he is more forceful than them we're beginning to get the idea of this rebel angel that makes people wonder sometimes including william blake and others um this rebel angel who becomes quite sympathetic and people wonder if if how conscious milton was in casting satan as this angel of rebellion and how sympathetic it makes him in a way in places so again this idea of a mind that cannot be changed one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven really interesting idea right there and i mean i think many philosophers and especially many people who who muse on the aspects of happiness would agree with this but it is our attitude towards our situation that makes us happy or sad rather than um, the situation itself within reason obviously okay and he says again here we may reign secure and in my choice famous lines coming up to reign is worth ambition though in hell better to reign in hell than serve in heaven there's the pridefulness of satan right there um he scarce had ceased when superior fiend was moving toward the shore his ponderous shield ethereal temper massy large and round behind him cast the broad circumference some beautiful just i'm reading some stuff out here because of how beautiful it is i don't want to rush through these lines too much as i am doing right now to just hit story beats so again let's look at some of this writing here so we're talking about this shield that hung on his shoulders like the moon whose orb through optic glass the tuscan artist views an evening from the top of Thessaly or in vardano to descry new lands rivers or mountains in her spotty globe his spear so before we get onto the spear but this description of his shield um which is like a moon but if we're just even looking at the the music yes there's no end rhyme but what about the this internal rhyme and maybe alliteration as well so behind him cast the broad circumference hung on his shoulders like the moon whose orb so broad circumference sort of rhymes of orb orb and broad those two sounds chime with each other the moon through optic glass the tuscan artist views so again these, these internal triad of rhymes where in four lines we have broad which is sort of the the, the second last stressed syllable of a line rhyming um with the final stressed syllable of the next line and again it happens again like the moon has an assonance so the the second last stressed syllable of one line has an assonance a sort of sound the, the, the same um vowel sound ooh, ooh as the final syllable of the next line so you see all these little little techniques when you really stop and look over some of the text it's quite beautiful so it then describes his his staff which is the set which is you know larger than a norwegian evergreen 
the kind that we put in um, in the middle of Trafalgar Square at Christmas these days. So he's he's still a, he's still addressing these these angels, these fallen angels who are just going exactly like that in these roiling lava flows and then he finally says awake arise or be forever fallen and so once they heard they they spring up now this is where i'm definitely going to skip over a lot a lot here because while he first describes all of these angels sort of rising up these fallen angels rising up into the air um, to their general's voice they soon obeyed innumerable as when the potent rod of amram's son of egypt's evil day waved round the coast up called a pitchy cloud of locusts warping on the eastern wind but o'er the realm of impious pharaoh hung like night and darkened all the land of nile so numberless were those bad angels seen hovering on wind above the cope of hell twixt upper never and surrounding fires till as a signal given up the ephir uplifted spear satan's spear of their great sultan waving to direct their course in even balance down they light on the firm brimstone and fill all the plain a multitude like which the populous north poured never from her frozen loins that's a reference to the barbarians to past rain or to the danau now from here this is an interesting so so wonderful epic imagery again um using the image of the plague of locusts from the story of exodus from the story of moses when he was visiting the plagues upon egypt and the uh locusts blacking out the sky with their with their with their wings this is now happening with these rebel angels instead when they fly up into the sky and land again from here we have a very long passage um that ultimately just describes how can i say it it describes these fallen angels as as um in many occasions as pagan gods so and this is really interesting i think because he 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 has a bash at everyone firstly he 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 has a bash at the um the the gods that are named in the bible as false gods so such sort of uh baal is named as is moloch a, a god that children were sacrificed to um sort of baal even not baal baal and so he begins with all these descriptions of these of these biblical false gods um who someone like uh, solomon uh, had temples to king solomon even though his wise he was a bit of a sneaky pagan um but didn't seem to suffer too much for it and then um i think another one called dagon who's just a sort of this this um this 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 false god who's like a sea god who the Ark of the Covenant was placed in his temple overnight, and then when everyone went in into the temple the next day, the sort of the, the statue of Dagon had been mutilated. It had been dismembered, like something from the Ark of the Covenant, like like an Indiana Jones sort of sneaked out and battered it and got back in again. So, um, it's, so so there's descriptions of these old gods, but there's also descriptions of the pagan gods. So the the gods of the pharaohs are described, um, and also the Greek gods as well. And I think this is interesting because what 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 um what how can how how can these classical elements of you know the classical epics live with the Christian epic that he's trying to make, and so. He deals with another problem that Christians had as well, I guess, which is how did these false gods lord over such powerful empires? And he says that ultimately that's what they were. They were fallen angels uh, from heaven, part of the rebellion, so demons that deceived humans into worshipping them. So all of the uh, Greek and Roman gods, the, um, the 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 Egyptian gods, and these false gods of the of the Old Testament. 
they were they were part of it so um okay so really long description feel free it's a beautiful long passage and you know I, I feel like saying one of two things which is i think it's very rewarding if you read it slowly and carefully like a, any part of paradise lost but at the same time right if you really skim and skip read through it i don't think you lead, lose too much from it either i think it's it sets up that idea well, you lose the sublime poetry of, of milton but apart from that you, you 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 know i think if you're if you're having trouble with it then just move on it's fine and um get to this part here i don't know the exact um line reference so all these came and more came flocking but with looks downcast and damp yet such wherein appeared obscure some glimpse of joy to have found their chief not in despair to have found themselves not lost in loss itself which on his countenance face like doubtful hue but he his wonted pride soon recollecting with high words that bore semblance of worth nor substance gently raised their fainting courage and dispelled their fears so they look upon satan they see that he is not defeated he has that will within him and that cheers them up now i think there's a wonderful line here um where, where milton's having a bit of a pop at rhetoric so um and rhetoric's still responsible for a lot of stuff today I and mean, we just had an election that in many ways was won by a slogan which was get brexit done um very simplified you know just making just boiling it down to its essence and i think that was a leading uh, ultimately it was a leading issue in this election and i think led to its result so um you know just a lack of ambiguity if anything we we had months we've had years of indecision and ambiguity and a lot of people seem to vote for that one because they just wanted certainty more than anything else. They wanted the world to be, let's just say they wanted the world to be simpler and not too hard to work out. I won't say any more, anything more than that. So, um, but here, yeah. So anyway, where is it? Where is it? Soon erecting with, but with high words that bore semblance of worth, not substance gently raised. I love it. So there we go. There's some political, political rhetoric right there. So there's a long description here coming up where all of a sudden um, they're, they're like these marching bands and flags are unfurled. I mean, I don't know where they kept these things. I guess they must have been holding on to them as they fell from heaven. But uh, all of a sudden flags are unfurled and, and trumpets come out. And, and just, just looking at Satan, all of a sudden they are, they are you know, after he's given them his, his, his you know, empty rhetoric, um, everyone's got their flags out, everyone's got their trumpets out, everyone's ready to march, everyone's ready to go to war, and now they're, they're just the little marching, well, this infernal marching band is in session, and everyone's ready to do whatever Satan wills them to do. So there's a few more words about the, the might, just how mighty they are, and how there are plenty of examples that we can give to how mighty this sudden force, which we've seen once before in their attempt at at uh moving god from his throne and and so but now that the we finally we turn around and we get this description of satan and i think this is well worth reading out here so thus far these beyond compare of mortal prowess yet observed their dread commander he above the rest in shape and gesture proudly eminent stood like a tower his form had yet not lost all her original brightness nor appeared less than on uh, less than archangel ruined 
and the excess of glory obscured as when the sun new risen looks through the horizontal misty air shorn of his beams or from behind the moon in dim eclipse disastrous twilight sheds on half the nation and with fear of change perplexes monarch darkened so yet shone above them all the archangel but his face deep scars of thunder had entrenched and care sat on his faded cheek but under brows of dauntless courage and considerate pride waiting revenge so a, a description of satan which is ultimately he is still an archangel but an archangel ruined so he has angelic features but his ruin is also there and it sort of describes him that, that that his glory is still shining forth but perhaps through but it's it's obscured as when the sun new risen looks through the horizontal misty air so when the sun isn't fully shining but through a mist you can see that shadow of the sun or when it's eclipsed behind the moon and sort of sets that shadow across the land so really really interesting and finally we get i mean yeah, he's the villain right but there's this you know people say that in many ways milton satan is the first anti-hero and there's aspects of it just his appearance so he's this ruined angel but he's got scars of thunder on his face so he's he's this giant titan of an angel still wearing his angelic sort of angelic countenance but dimmed but ruined and oh is there anything else bad about his face yeah he's got thunder scars thunder scars it it sounds cool doesn't it he sounds kind of if you're a christian and you're listening to this i'm not trying to sort of glorify or cause offense i'm just looking at the literary description that milton gives and he does give that he's that kind of funky bad guy isn't he you can see how much of this has been borrowed from over the centuries so yes he now prepared to speak whereat their doubled ranks they bend from wing to wing and half enclose him round with all his peers attention held them mute thrice he essayed and thrice in sight of spite of scorn tears such as angels weep burst forth at last words interwove with sighs found out their way so he attempts to speak three times but the emotion you know gets the best of him three times then finally he gives this this speech so he talks about again he talks about he, he addresses them he talks about how great a force they are the greatness of the force they they you know how who, who they look like some army that could never be beaten but then said you know uh monarch in heaven till then as one secure sat on his throne upheld by old repute so almost saying un, you know the old repute is what held him up consent or custom consent or custom and his regal state put forth at full but still his strength concealed so they didn't see that strength that was concealed by god on his throne which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall henceforth his might we know and know our own so as not either to provoke or dread new war provoked our better part remains to work in close design or fraud by fraud or guile that what force effected not that he no less at length from us may find who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe some really interesting points here so he says he says um you know we don't want to provoke war again but he doesn't want to provoke war neither of us want war i think of donald trump and iran a very recent news story where things seem to get very het up and then at some point whether it was other people stepping in you know diplomacy invisible diplomacy i don't know but trump and iran both kind of retreated both both sides claiming victory because um there was still memory of war 
in the Middle East, war in the Gulf states. And no one ultimately wanted any of that again. So I don't know if this is being spoken about, you know, Satan saying this as well. And here he says, um, again, he that overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe. It's a wonderful line. He that overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe. There's a truthful line there, isn't it? A truthful couple of lines. When you think of any war, again, think of the Middle East when the Bush arrived on a on a warship with American flags on it declaring victory. And then, of course, what happened? <laughs> what happened in Iraq? Um, it turned into a different kind of war. And so, yes, you'd beaten an army, quite easily beaten an army, but that was only half your battle. You had not defeated the minds of your enemy. And uh, this is something that I, I see here in, in, in Satan's speech. So, and then it's a, how do we fight again? So, um, he starts to speak of this rumour that, that God has created another world with another people, obviously planet Earth and the human race. And so, um, space may produce new worlds where so rife there went a fame in heaven that he ere long intended to create and therein plant a generation whom his choice regard should favour equal to the sons of heaven thither if but to pry shall be perhaps our first eruption thither or elsewhere so if but to pry espionage you say and let's just our first thing should be to actually check out this world have a little look see what's going on espionage and is 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 certainly this is the, the battle that Satan is going to wage now. It's not a wage of physical war. It's it's subterfuge and espionage and subversion. So, what happens next then? So he says, well, we are going to go to war. Um, we will not submit to, to God, but we're doing it differently. We're going to do it a different way because the other way it didn't work, and we are properly outgunned, no matter how mighty we are. So what happens next is great because the, the, the devils are so in, inspired that they do the work in, a, in, in, a, in an hour that a multitude of the entire human race would take it for generations. Um, Mammon, the god of sort of the lowest, is meant to be the lowest of the angels and one who is, who is seen as one who is only obsessed with money and gold, um, helps them build. So what happens next is all of a sudden, so moments ago they're all lying around for nine days going, Aah. and the next moment... There are, it's literally the regeneration of hell <laughs> you know they're tidying up and they're making the place a bit nicer to be around it, it literally is like that it's going from everyone's despairing uh, it reminds me and so the next moment they, they're, they're raising this temple this impossible temple they start building um i won't go through all the details it's amazing intricate details of how they make this um how they make this massive temple and but I, I I don't know. It reminds me of a scene in a film when when someone maybe arrives at a place that's a bit you know that the main characters maybe have lost everything and they arrive in a in a rundown house and that's going to be their new home and everyone's really despondent until one of them goes, "Hey, don't be so glum. Don't worry. All this place is a little bit of work and a lot of love and we'll have it spruced up in no time. So who's going to join me? Come on, everyone. Let's just get this job done. Bippity boppity boo." but devils in hell so yeah they raise up this temple and it's this again the baroque comes into description here is the biggest temple ever made the main hall of a temple is like a field with a roof um it really is the regeneration of hell so 
and also here we have light so you know after we've had all these this darkness but the black flames which only emit darkness visible um from the arched roof pedant by subtle magic many a row of starry lamps and blazing crescents crescents fed with naphtha and asphaltus yielded light as from the sky i haven't looked up what naphtha and asphaltus are it's not going to be asphalt is it i'm guessing asphalt gets his name from asphaltus you can contact me about that if, if you feel that i've failed you in not giving a description of what asphaltus is so they raise this they, they raise this amazing amazing temple and they call it and i love this it's the high capital of hell and they call it pandemonium now pandemonium is a we've we've used the term haven't we to talk about confusion it was pandemonium there no one had a plan even though this looks different someone definitely has a plan here now pandemonium here it's a phrase coined by milton right here in paradise lost it's the first use of the word pandemonium that's amazing isn't it so i didn't know that <laughs> and I'm like, oh wow so it's not just he's got first i'm thinking oh we called it pandemonium did he after the ancient word pandemonium oh wait a minute it's not an ancient word milton invented it um so why because it's a it's a construct it's a compound of two words it's uh the, the english word pan as in the horned god pan and then um the greek word demon so it's pan the demon so that's the name of the place pandemonium it's named after that so it's a it's a construct of greek and english so we we end we end with um everyone being called to a council in this temple and while we've already had the image of locusts once again he uses the the image of something very small within a, a natural environment to conjure an image of something vaster than we can ever conjure so when all these devils are finally flying into this great temple and heading into the main hall which is as big as a massive field with a roof on it um, as bees in springtime when the sun with taurus rides pour forth their populous youth about the hive in clusters they among fresh dews and flowers fly to and fro and on the smoothed plank the suburb of their straw-built citadel new rubbed with baum expatiate and confer their state affairs so thick the airy crowd swarmed and were strained straightened till the signal given behold a wonder but they not <laughs> sorry behold a wonder they but now who seemed in bigness to surpass earth's giant sons now less than smallest dwarfs in narrow room throng numberless like the pygmean race beyond the indian mount or fairy elves whose midnight revels by a forest side of mountain some belated peasant sees so he in creating you know he, he reduces these massive he spent time talking about that you know that they're the size of titans they're the size of giants how big is satan his his staff is taller than a norwegian fir tree than a norwegian spruce but now they've created this temple in hill in hell called pandemonium which is which is which makes them look tiny which makes them look like little worker bees and so he calls them in and let's let's just read out these final lines of this of this verse paragraph so um thus incorporeal spirits to smallest forms reduced their shapes immense and were at large though without number 
still amidst the hall of that infernal court, but far within, and in their di own dimensions like themselves, the great seraphic lords and cherubim, in close recess and secret conclave, sat a thousand demigods on golden seats, frequent and full, after a short silence then, and summons read, the great consult began. Doom, 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 doo, 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 doo. That's the end of the first the first book of Paradise Lost. So there's the plot, the plot development. They're all he's created this great temple. He's addressed his angels. They've raised themselves up. They've stopped feeling like victims. They're ready to get to it again. They realize a different plan has to be had. They found out there's this new world created by God with a new race of people upon it. And now they're thinking, okay, this is where we strike. This is this is what he's got a little project, has he? We can't go to heaven, but what's about this place here? And that's how it ends. Um, I'm really looking forward to going on the rest of this journey. So, so ultimately, and 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 there's so many things I want to talk about, but but I've already spent so much time. How how long have I been? Oh my god, this is going to be a long one. So. I uh, normally at the end of these things, I, I, I go, I wander off on one and I'm not really going to wander off on one, but I am going to, I, I am massively impressed by the world that, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way at all, but it's amazing this visual world that is created by someone who is no lo has no longer been able to see for so long. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a miracle, but there was a, an author and psychologist I became aware for, of from a podcast about 10 years ago, which is no longer available to listen to, I'm afraid, called All in the Mind. And his name was Zoltan Tori, and he's, he's someone who specialized on the study of consciousness. But um, in this podcast, he was talking about his blindness. He had some kind of accident with chemicals and it blinded him. Now, he spoke about how when he was... Um, when he was recovering, when he was in recuperation, he was told to let go of the visual world and to invest himself in sound and touch and to let those create his world instead. So it's really interesting that, that I don't know what this has to do with the brain's architecture, for instance, but that, 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 but our sense of seeing right now. So if, if you are a, a sighted person, whether partially or fully sighted, and your eyes are open listening to this right now, you have this amazing thing happening in front of you and who knows how we get this kind of experience. It's just popping into consciousness. There it is. There it just, there it is. And imagine when it's gone and how this informs our own sort of inner visual world. And a lot of blind people, I could be wrong here. I, I'm really talking about memory from this podcast. A lot of blind people were told to sort of let go of that visual world and to to build partially because they need the, the use of their imagination informs their sensory embeddedness in the world. And so they have to transfer to other senses and and give those senses the same power that vision once had. And what happens, and I'm sure that's very rewarding, but this one gentleman here couldn't let go of the visual world and so chose to, to live inside this um, visual world. And, he's, and he, I remember he spoke about how wondrous it was and how unlimited it was. And I wonder if, if, if one is able, if one goes blind, if one loses their immediate visual relationship with the world, does the internal visual sense of the world become more intense? Does it become more vivid? 
if we don't let go of that, if that becomes our sole visual reference. And it seems to be so. And I don't know why, but it makes me think of Milton and Paradise Lost and think, think that he must have had this, he must have held on. I mean, I guess they didn't have the same kind of rehabilitation at the time as well if you if you went blind. So it mightn't be that he was absolutely hopeless at finding his way around and governing himself by his senses. But he um, he kept hold of this visual world. And, and certainly because he talks about, you know, the dreams that he had you know, in, a, in, in a previous episode of Rusty Sonnets we spoke about uh, last night. I dreamt my late espoused saint. He, he, you know, he, he, that shows it also that he has that visual world because he imagines the wife whose face he never saw. So she appears with her face obscured by a veil. And then, um, and they brought back my nights or is it? Yeah. And they brought back my night was the last line of a poem, basically saying, bring back his blindness. So, and he talks, talks about his fancied sight as well. So I think Milton was probably in the same place as this philosopher and that he couldn't let go of the, the, uh, the visual imaginative world. And I think part of that not letting go has given us one of the greatest works of literature. Um, I did ask people some, for some feedback on, on the lead up to this and it didn't really happen. But if you want to give me some feedback, I can incorporate it into the podcast, whether you can get ahead of me and read some stuff in book number two and ask me questions about it or whether you disagree about some aspects of this or feel that I've missed out on some things or just agree with me or concur or whatever. Or if you if you've just had your own little revelations while reading this first book of Paradise Lost, then please contact me via Poet Nile um, on Twitter, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L or RustySonnets at gmail.com. And um, I'm going to leave it there. Oh, yeah, because I've had one bit. I've had some feedback and mainly the feedback's been lovely. It's just people saying, hey, I'm really looking forward to this, which is fine. And then one bit of feedback said, why don't you just do His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman instead? <laughs> I just, I'm sure Philip Pullman would also see the funny side of that. Without in any way wanting to belittle Philip Pullman and his work, um, I just love the way that that's just seen as an alternative or uh, anyone who's reading Paradise Lost is getting it wrong and they should be reading Philip Pullman instead. So I'm going to leave it there on that on that happy and and uh and tickled with amusement notes so thank you for listening if you want to share this if you know anyone who wants to read paradise lost and you felt that this helped you in your own ventures through paradise lost then please please put them onto it or feel free if this is your first time listening to this podcast to listen to my other pod, podcast episodes where i talk about other poems and other old po other other poets so thank you for listening i if 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 you want to listen to rust some more rusty sonnets i'll have a new episode next week but if you want to just do the Paradise Lost Book Club. That's fine as well. The next episode of a Paradise Lost Book Club will be on the final Sunday of February. I've no idea which one that is, but that's when it will be. Okay, so we'll be looking at book two. So if you want to read book two for now for yourself, give me some observations. That would be wonderful. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Bye bye. <laughs>